Cape Up is sponsored by Zeal. Want to know the only thing better than getting a massage? Getting a massage in the comfort of your own home. Introducing Zeal. Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. Kevin DeLeon is the California state senator whose insurgent candidacy for the U.S. Senate denied incumbent Senator Dianne Feinstein the state Democratic Party nomination. But who is he and where did he come from? I never thought about getting involved in electoral politics. I was never a congressional aide or fellow. I was never a, a Senate intern. Um, I never worked for a politician, so I wasn't uh, infected with the political bug uh, to get involved in the Democratic Party. De Leon talks passionately about his unplanned foray into politics, his immigrant roots, his disdain for Trump, and what all of that has to do with an inflatable unicorn hovering in the corner of his campaign office. Senator De Leon, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. And thanks for having us in your your campaign office. You know, when we first met in May of 2017, I'd never heard of you before, but someone who worked for you is a friend of mine, introduced us, and I've kept my eye on you ever since. And fast forward to about a March of 2018, and there you are at the Democratic Convention for the state of California, and you come within a hair's breadth of fully snatching the nomination for U.S. Senate from the incumbent Senator Dianne Feinstein. For my listeners who are also like, who is this guy? Who are you? Where did you come from? Where did I come from? I came from my mother. You know? <laughs> I, uh, I'm the uh, youngest child of a, a single immigrant mother with a third grade education. I grew up uh, in San Diego, uh, in the barrio of Logan Heights, which is uh, you know kind of nearby the uh, southern border with Mexico, with uh, Tijuana. So I grew up in the border region, and uh, my mother was a housekeeper. Uh, she cleaned homes in the very wealthy enclaves of La Jolla, California, with the homes with the ocean panoramic views. Mm-hmm. And it was there that I learned the value of hard work, and I learned about my mother's very strong work ethic because it was a, a woman. It was a, a single immigrant mother with a third grade education who put the roof over my head, who put the clothes on my back and the food on the table. And uh, being the only one to graduate from high school in my family and the youngest one in my family, and uh, used to teach ESL, uh, history and civics to adult immigrants who were on their way to become legal permanent residents of the United States of America. And uh, I ran for office for the very first time back in 2006. And, and prior to that, I had never been elected to anything, whether it's county board of supervisor, whether it was a city council, school board. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, when you're in college and you have a large class and the professor or faculty sort of breaks you up into groups and among your own peers, you have an assignment and your own peers choose, select amongst yourselves who's going to report out to the larger uh, class. I wasn't even selected to do that among my own peers. So, you know, back in 2006, I, I ran and I actually quite frankly thought I would lose. And this was for the state assembly? It's for the California state assembly. It's a full-time position, unlike uh, many other state legislative bodies throughout the country, they're half-time, you know, or part-time. Uh, this is full-time, uh, like the Congress, uh, being the sixth largest economy in the world. And I ran against the incumbent's uh, hand-picked candidate, um, and I ran against uh, the granddaughter of a legendary labor icon who has his own U.S. postal stamp, uh, Cesar Chavez, uh, Christine Chavez, a wonderful uh, young woman. And uh, I, quite frankly, thought I'd lose. Uh, but by the grace of God, uh, I won, and uh, and I became the uh, eventually the chair of the Appropriations Committee, the Assembly. I left the assembly and went on to the California State Senate and became the chair of the uh, Appropriations Committee as well, the chair of the Democratic Caucus. And eventually I became the leader, the, the, the president, uh, the first person of color to lead the California State Senate in over 133 years. <laughs> what was the spark for you to run for California Assembly 1 and to challenge the daughter of someone as legendary as Cesar Chavez? Well, a couple things. One is, I I think that interestingly, I never thought about getting involved in electoral politics. I was never a 
congressional aide or fellow. I was never uh, a Senate intern. Um, I never worked for a politician. So I wasn't uh, infected with the political bug uh, to get involved uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, and uh, what happened was I got inspired or motivated perhaps uh, by a an assembly member at the time, back in the 90s, a Democratic uh, assembly member uh, representing Boyle Heights in East L.A. And it's the largest number of immigrants, Latino immigrants, uh, in the country, uh, the largest concentration. And it was a Democratic assembly member who uh, was a graduate of Harvard and West Point, eventually became actually Secretary of the Army under uh, uh, Bill Clinton and eventually the president of the University of New Mexico. Well, the reason why I got motivated by him was because he authored the measure to actually take away driver's license from immigrants. And I thought to myself, that's absolutely wrong. How could you do that in a district that you represent? So for the very first time, we thought amongst ourselves, my my friends, uh, we were in Los Angeles now, I grew up in San Diego, Um, Perhaps one of us has to run for office. You know, I surely wasn't ready to run for office. I didn't believe I had the abilities uh, or the political maturity to to understand uh, how to run for office. So one of my friends uh, ran for office and um, uh, he eventually put up a good show, but he ended up losing. Another friend of mine uh, ran for office. He did win uh, his seat and eventually became the Speaker of the Assembly. Uh, California. And uh, then I decided, well, if I'm going to run, I should run in 2006. And if I lose, I lose. And if I win, well, fantastic. And I ended up winning. And, you know, Christine Chavez, who I, I, can, I, I can't say enough, is, is a lovely person, uh, very mediagenic, uh, very bright, intelligent, has really contributed greatly to California in so many different ways. But I quite frankly thought I was going to lose. I would walk precincts, knock on doors, and I would see these beautiful mail pieces. And I thought to myself, I, one day I I remember before I knocked at this woman's house on her door, I sat on, on her doorstep and I saw this beautiful mail piece. It surely wasn't for me. And I thought to myself, oh Lord, I'm going to ask you one thing. When I lose this race, I'm just going to ask you that you make it respectable. That's all. Just make it respectable. <laughs> not a blowout. Do not just, blow me out. Just right. make it respectable. And we ended up winning actually by 20 points. Uh, and uh, Why do you think that was? I think maybe a couple factors. One was I, I won the sizable uh, number of immigrant votes, folks who were one time undocumented, who became legal permanent residents, and who became naturalized U.S. citizens and eventually voters. Folks who became uh, legal permanent residents under uh, a law that was passed in a bipartisan fashion by both Democrats and Republicans. Ronald Reagan was president, and I think Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House at the time. I can't tell you who was the uh, the, the majority mm-hmm. leader of the U.S. Senate at the time, but it was done in a bipartisan fashion. And I won uh, the female vote, uh, the overwhelming number of female votes. Uh, I, I don't know why. You know, I can't explain the reason why, but I walked every single door. Um, I, I engaged with them. Um, with voters, and even if folks had made up their mind to be with somebody else, um, I just felt that if, if you give me an opportunity to just explain my values and, 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 and my vision and my platform on what I do, if you give me an opportunity to be your voice, that I could persuade you to be supportive of my candidacy. And I think that, that, that it worked, and uh, we won by, uh, by 20 points. So then you're now a um, member of the California State Senate, Correct. You are at the time you were the president pro tem of this of the state senate, so the leader of the state senate. That's correct. Um, the first one, as you said, the first person of color, the first Latino in more than I think it's 130 years yes. in the state of California, and there you are running this insurgent campaign for the nomination for U.S. Senate, and by California rules, you have to win 60 percent of the vote in order to get the nomination outright. And you challenged U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. You drew 54% of the vote, and she only got 37% of the vote. What is that? Six, that's a 16-point spread. Why do you think that you were able to just get 54% of the vote against someone as legendary and as tenured as Dianne Feinstein. I, I have a lot of respect uh, for uh, Senator Feinstein, and I'm not running against someone, but I'm running to lead. 
And I think there's a major difference. I think that California is long overdue a debate, uh, at least a quarter of a century long overdue, to have a debate on the values, on the issues, and on the priorities that we care deeply about, whether it's climate change, whether it's the issue of health care, whether it's the issue of immigration reform, whether it's the issue of um, the environment, investments in education, restorative justice, and criminal justice, and the devastating impacts it's had on many communities, uh, not just in California, but throughout the country. So I think Californians really want a, a, a different voice, or, or at least uh, a contrasting juxtaposition of a different choice on the ballot. And I think that's good. I think that's healthy for our democracy. I think it's good for a state like California, being the sixth largest economy uh, in the world. We are the driver for America's economy, uh, whether people uh, like that or not, you know, from other parts of of the country. And uh, I worked really hard. I rolled up my sleeves and I talked to so many delegates, you know, at the Democratic Convention. There's 3,000 delegates, you know, representing every corner of uh, a, a huge state like California. And I had an opportunity to make my case before the delegates uh, as to what is possible if we have leadership from the front lines and not the sidelines. What is possible if we have a voice that uh, is unequivocal and won't be conciliatory or complacent, that won't be patient um, and um, uh, just on the sidelines, uh, patient and polite, These are very tumultuous times in our nation's history. And I think in comparison, I think a lot of baby boomers would even agree that in comparison to Watergate and Richard Nixon, uh, our current president makes Richard Nixon look like a choir boy. So because these are very tumultuous, unprecedented times in our nation's history, in fact, I would say without sounding, um, and I know politicians can be prone to hyperbole, whether you're on the left or the right, and I agree, but these are very dangerous times as well. And that's why I made a decision on November 9th, 2016, the day after the presidential election, uh, that I would help lead the resistance for California, but not lead lead the resistance just for resistance sakes, but to lead the resistance with results for California, Uh, whether it's our environment, whether it's human and civil rights, whether it's immigration, climate change, our economic prosperity as an economic engine uh, for America. Uh, the the issue that uh, that impacts everyday uh, Californians, everyday Americans, breathing clean air and drinking clean water. Um, there's a reasons why I hired the 82nd Attorney General of the United States of America, Eric Holder, to be senior counsel to the California State Senate to anticipate both strategically as well as tactically uh, what this administration would try to do, either through executive orders or statutorily through the Congress, to undermine our economic prosperity, our values, as well as our people. Well, your your answer there uh, echoes something that you said to The Nation magazine in an interview about your decision on November 9th uh, to run for office. And in that interview and in that this particular answer, you said, um, as you listed all of the things that needed to be done, you say the, the, the list goes on and on. It's not just about resistance. It's also about real laws that have improved the human condition for all, of Calif- all Californians. And when I read that and listening to you now, I'm thinking, how, how will this work in Washington where nothing has gotten done in years, one? And how will you be able to continue do, doing these things if Democrats don't retake the Senate and Republicans still hold the White House? Well, th- that's a very good question, Jonathan, and that's a very legitimate question. There's a couple things I want to say touching this point. Um, to me, it doesn't make a difference if you live in the Bay Area, if you live in Central Valley, if you live um, in the Deep South, the bayous of Louisiana, the oil fields of North Dakota, or if you live in a townhouse off Park Avenue in Manhattan. I think that being the largest economy in the world, the largest GDP, for lack of a better uh, economic measurement, we'll use GDP for right now, uh, it is clear that this economy has not touched the lives in a positive way uh, of many Americans. And it doesn't make a difference if you are a Bernie Sanders supporter, a Hillary Clinton supporter, or a Donald Trump supporter. If you're black, brown, if you're uh, white, uh, Asian American, racially mixed. And I, I think that Washington, D.C. has been disconnected uh, to Americans uh, for a very, very long time. 
And uh, what we have taken in California is not just aspirational goals, but we have taken these aspirational goals and we have codified them statutorily into law using the force of the law to effectuate positive change, to improve the human condition for all individuals, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you come from, regardless of the, the hue of your skin, regardless of your legal status. Washington, D.C., without a doubt, I think universally, folks will say, across the board, is deeply dysfunctional. Um, in this case, the Republicans have a trifecta. They have both the White House and they have both bicameral bodies the House as well as the U.S. Senate. And they have proven to date uh, that with all of that power unified, or in this case, maybe perhaps fractured because they have a circular firing squad themselves, among themselves, that they're not capable of moving forward uh, an agenda, even for their constituents or their special interests that they care deeply about, as opposed to the coal miner, perhaps a coal owner in this case. Um, I'm keenly aware of this. And uh, as the leader of the Senate in California, I have been able to work across the aisle with Republicans to secure huge uh, transformational policies that will improve the lives of Californians every day. Transportation infrastructure, where we're going to have $5 billion in perpetuity, scale it up to 10 years, we'll have $50 billion to invest in our roads, our highways, our crumbling infrastructure, our bridges. Uh, the extension of the Global Warming Solutions Act of uh, 2006, that's AB 32. It's a huge bill in California. The reason why is we had the, to uh, the uh, Tokyo Protocols uh, that were signed, and the United States uh, sought to undermine the Tokyo Protocols. So worldwide, many scientists were uh, in a... Uh, um, not in a good place because they believe that the U.S. was undermining climate change policies that the world had agreed to. 2006, California moves forward the Global Warming Solutions Act, AB 32. That was a shot across the bow for the entire world that really re-energized the world to believing that a nation state, or perhaps not a nation state, but a subnational like California can lead the world on the issue of climate change. So what We've done so successfully in California. I'd like to like elevate this to a national platform uh, in Washington, D.C. Listen, I've never closed the doors in engaging the White House or the administration. I've given an opportunity to be the voice for California in Washington. I'll never say no to sitting down with President Trump to see if we can, in fact, find a deal where a deal is possible. But I'm not foolish enough to also think that you're dealing with an individual who quite frankly doesn't know how to land a deal. An individual who has Washington negotiating against themselves. An individual who likes to use members of Congress as a prop to sit next to him in the White House, knowingly, uh, knowing that there'll never be a deal that's made and that the goalposts will be moved continuously. And at the end of the day, there's nothing to show for the American people. Do you trust him? Given everything that you just said, why why sit down with President Trump if you're Senator DeLeon from the state of California? Why sit down with the guy who can't make a deal and who can't be trusted even if he says he wants a deal? But I do think you have a responsibility, regardless of where you are on the spectrum, uh, right or left, to, to sit down with the chief executive, the commander in chief, to see if you can work a deal out with him. But if you can ask me, do I trust him? The answer is absolutely no. I mean, can you s secure a deal using leverage? Uh, 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 absolutely. And I think that sometimes uh, our friends uh, in Washington don't use the leverage that they have. Uh, I know that Republicans play for keeps. Uh, they keep the, the sharp tip of the spear at your jugular. Uh, and I think that our friends sometimes don't use the leverage that they have. It's limited. Uh, I understand that, you know. But um, uh, I don't trust in this individual. That's why I made a decision which was very informative to me uh, back in 2016. This is before the Republican nomination, that I saw the way he treated uh, Chris Christie. The former Jeb governor Bush, of New Jersey, the former governor of Texas. Lindsey Graham. Senator from South Carolina. Even Marco Rubio. Senator from Florida. Even someone like Ted Cruz. Senator of Texas. I saw the way he treated them. And I said to my fellow Democrats, if he treats Republicans in such a despicable, dehumanizing manner, he, who goes out of his way to humiliate them. How do you think he's going to treat Democrats? How do you think he's going to treat people of color? How do you think he's going to treat the
the most marginalized and the most vulnerable. So you already have an idea, clearly, of what he's capable of and not capable of. Uh, bait and switch, you know, uh, pulling the rug from right under you. Uh, when you believe you have an ironclad deal, that is something that's universal. Your word is your word, regardless if you are on the right or the left or points in between. So I knew right away that this was a man that we could not negotiate with. Now, be mindful about one thing. Had Jeb Bush won the presidency or John Kasich won the presidency, I, as a Democrat, as a partisan, would be disappointed. But I'd get over it in about a week's time and then try to figure out where we can negotiate, find common ground, and where we can't. Well, that's okay because we debate, we dialogue, we even fight within the spirit of the American body politic, within what is viewed as normalcy. This is abnormalcy. And any attempt to normalize abnormal behavior is, is, is to me, is, 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 uh, is futilist. Is that, is that one of the reasons why you criticize Senator Feinstein for saying at, at one point, I guess, at, may have been either after the inauguration or after the election, that she thought President Trump could be a good president? That comment hit me hard. Because when you state to the American public that perhaps if we are patient enough that Donald Trump could be a good president for this country, you ask dreamers if they can be patient enough knowing that their status is in limbo. You ask single mothers if they can be patient enough knowing that their children are racially profiled or they don't have access to quality education or health care. You ask those who have been disconnected for so many years by the political powers in Washington, ask them to be patient. Being the youngest child of a single immigrant mother with a third grade education, I was taken aback by that comment. And for the very first time, I started thinking, well, perhaps we need a different voice, a contrasting voice representing Washington because California is not the California was a quarter of a century ago. It's a dramatically different place demographically, linguistically, uh, culturally, uh, technologically wise, economically, in so many different ways. But our diversity is, is, is our strength. And when you have a president who mocks our inclusivity, who demonizes our diversity, I said, you can't ask for patience. This is something that's completely... Uh, I've always said we cannot allow an electoral aberration reverse generations of progress at the height of our historic diversity, our scientific advancement, our economic output, and our sense of global responsibility. That's why I believe strongly that America must, California must remain America's exceptional example, a beacon of hope and opportunity in a very uncertain world. And that's why we've gotten kind of a lot of the hell, you know, from mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Sessions and from uh, Donald Trump. You know, so listening to you, I, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, given everything that you've said about California, the importance of California to the nation, the important things that you've been able to get done as a member of the state assembly, as a member of the state Senate, as a leader of the Senate, why not run for state attorney general? or lieutenant governor and set yourself up to run for governor when you would have infinitely more power in those two lower positions and then eventually as governor than you ever would being, if you were successful, being in the minority of the United States Senate. Well, there's a couple of things. I can't run for attorney general because I'm not an attorney. You know, okay. Well, so we'll take that off the table. All right, take right? it off the table. We'll take it off the table. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, um, uh, though I respect the position, Lieutenant Governor has a different type of uh, role and responsibility than many other uh, Lieutenant Governors throughout the country. Say Lieutenant Governor in Texas is arguably the most powerful position, even more so than Governor of Texas. Um, and so it has a different uh, role and responsibility. Um, I'd never close my door uh, to the idea of becoming Governor of a Golden State. 
uh, like California. But I also believe, too, that we have to work strongly to get a Democrat uh, in the White House, uh, to uh, get a Democratic majority in the House as well as the U.S. Senate. Um, I have a lot of respect uh, for the U.S. Senate as well as the House. Um, I think this is an opportunity to really move an agenda that works for all Americans, uh, not just uh, those who are progressives or, or those who are on the left or, the, or those who are Democrats, but for all uh, Americans and all Californians. And if given the opportunity uh, to be the voice for California, I'd roll up my sleeves and move an agenda because whether people want to characterize it as a California agenda or progressive agenda, quite frankly, uh, the way I view it, it's an agenda that has proven results that you can verify and you can quantify. For example, in California, we have created 500,000 high-quality paying jobs in the clean energy space. That's 10 times more jobs in the clean energy space in California than there are coal mining jobs in all of America. So if those states or regions voted strongly for Donald Trump, then why can't we offer an alternative that gives them a good quality, high-paying job an ability to put a roof over their child's head, clothes on their back, and food on the table, even if they voted for Trump. I, I could care less. But it's their opportunity to grow this economy. And what you have is you have politicians, you have elected officials in other parts of the country too who have not figured out what the trends are and have been loyal uh, to uh, incumbent industries that, quite frankly, are dying. And as a result, you see this sense of uh, distrust you see this huge disconnection. You see high unemployment. You see people losing their homes, losing their marriages, losing their families as a result. And sometimes, unfortunately, sadly and tragically, they have numbed their own pain by using opiates or other illicit drugs uh, to deal with this. I can tell you this. If I were to lose my job, my self-esteem would be shattered. My sense of self and my ability to, my self-confidence to take care of myself and, and my family it would be on the ground. And then when you have politicians, that's why politics and voting and elections are consequential. Because when you have politicians who walk into a room of maybe perhaps largely men who are highly unemployed, who have broken lives, because there's no sense of self, because a job means everything to you. And they smell that fear. They smell that panic. They smell that economic in, in anxiety and low self-esteem. And instead of moving policies that say, we're going to grow this economy with intentionality and sense of purpose, I may not be able to promise, I may, I may not be able to deliver everything that I'm promising you, but I tell you one thing, I'm going to roll up my sleeves, I'm going to work hard for you, and we're going to do this together. I'm going to work hard for you. I give you that, my word. But instead of that, they say, I know why you're in the situation that you're in. It is because of those people over there who look like them, who talk like them. So that tears at the fabric of who we are already a great nation long before Donald Trump. And it doesn't bring us together. It divides us because at the end of the day, he's not going to be able to deliver for a Trump supporter who need the help the most. And, and that's why we need a unifying, coherent uh, message and a vision and a policy platform that brings this country together. K-Pop is sponsored by Zeal. Want to know the only thing better than getting a massage? Getting a massage in the comfort of your own home. Introducing Zeal. Bring the spa to you and try Zeal today. Right now, go to zeal.com and enter promo code KPUP to get $20 off your first in-home massage. That's promo code KPUP. You know, you said in, again, in this interview with The Nation, again, Echoing what you, you, what you just me. said. I forgot about that <laughs> yeah, interview. Right. I hope I said everything right. Well, here's what you said. It doesn't matter to me if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed, to send their kid to college. Poverty is poverty, whether you live in a red state or a blue state. Let's build policies that have been verified to actually work to help people that help working families. And this strikes the same tone and message I've heard from other Democrats running for office, a person who instantly came to mind was Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor in Georgia. She, if she wins, she would be the first African-American uh, woman governor of a state. And I'm just wondering, because of this 
all-inclusive message that's in that quote I just read, in what you just said, and what I've been hearing from Stacey Abrams, is this all-inclusive, more inclusive message a reaction to the election of Donald Trump? You know, that's a very good question. And let me say, I, I, I know Stacey Abrams a, a little bit. I had the honor to share the same stage with her at the Democratic National Convention uh, in Philadelphia. And uh, uh, Stacey, if you're listening, uh, if, uh, I'm sure you will be. Uh, I wish you the very best luck uh, in your quest to become uh, the first African-American woman, uh, uh, a governor of the state, of the great state of Georgia. You pose a very good question, Jonathan, um, but let me say this. This is these values and uh, these policies, I've had them way before 2016, uh, the electoral aberration through the electoral college system that we have, this antiquated system that allowed someone like Donald Trump to become president of the United States. Uh, because I've always believed that uh, we should have an inclusive message uh, that um, builds prosperity for all individuals, regardless of who you are and where you come from. California is home to a large number of African-Americans whose migration patterns started from the deep south, from grandmothers and grandparents and great-grandparents who were fleeing Jim Crow laws in the deep south, coming to the West Coast, seeking a much better life and economic prosperity, only to confront perhaps a different type of discrimination and bias and racism on the West Coast a different type, you know, but discrimination nonetheless. And whether you're from the south of us, from Mexico or Central America, whether you are from China, Vietnam, whether you're from the UK, whether your extraction is Irish American, third, fourth, fifth generation, the reality is this. We celebrate who we are. We celebrate our diversity. We don't ban it. We don't deport it. And we as sure as hell don't wall it off. Not in a great state like California. So my message has always been, listen, uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, f years back, um, I was the co-chair of a proposition called Prop 39 with two other uh, individuals, uh, former Secretary of State, uh, Republican George Schultz, and uh, my good friend, Tom Steyer. We were the three co-chairs of Proposition 39. I won't bore you with the details of 39, but long story short, we, cl we closed an egregious corporate tax loophole, and as a result, we invest $500 million in energy efficiency projects in schools up and down the state of California. Point I want to make is this. It's not lost on me that individuals who voted for Donald Trump have a job because of Prop 39. Individuals who may not even believe in climate change right now are installing double-pane windows, window fenestration, HVAC, sensor lighting, uh, insulation, policies to reduce our energy load so we can reduce our greenhouse gases at the same time because you're using less energy, you have more money for school districts to invest in kids. Now, in some of our poorest areas in California, which is a microcosm of the, the United States of America, we have areas that are very strong, Trump counties, no doubt about it. But they have also benefited from Prop 39 and have a job as a result from Prop 39, and I'm happy for it. That's why you have to move a message that's inclusive of African-Americans, Latinos, uh, whites, Asian-Americans, racially mixed. Because at the end of the day, poverty is poverty. And at the end of the day, everyone wants the same thing. They want a roof over their head. They want clothes on their children's back. They want real opportunities to succeed. They don't want a system that's set up against them, nor do they want to deal with the systematic racism that has been perpetrated uh, for, for, for decades that hold people back and don't give them the opportunity to succeed, the opportunity to be who they can be if all of those barriers are removed. And once that happens, you have an economy that's an inclusive economy and we grow and prosper together, there's no better thing that unites this country. And that's what I've been saying for, for a long, long time. Well, see, here's what's so fascinating uh, about what you just said. And again, you know, what Stacey Abrams was saying, the knock against the Democratic Party, especially since the election of Donald Trump, is that the party has lost touch with the American people, that 
the forgotten voters, the people who voted for Donald Trump out of anger, they were forgotten. The Democratic Party had forgotten them and didn't consider them to be their voters because they were deplorable or because they were bigots or whatever the knock was on the Democratic Party. And it sounds to it sounds to me, again, given what you just said, is that the message that you as a Democrat is putting out there is, yeah, I'm a Democrat, but what my message and my values are about bringing everybody, everybody across across the finish line. No? Yeah? 100%. So then how do you convince Trump voters that you you actually have their interests at heart, especially when there's a president who's telling them and a television network that's telling them on an hourly basis that, you know, Democrats are out to ruin the country, that quote unquote illegals are streaming across the border to take your jobs and all sorts of other things. How do you push against you as a candidate and then the party push against that. Let me give you an example. The the latest one with the, with with Donald Trump's uh, call for governors to allow their respective states, national guard to uh, To patrol, patrol the border, the border, Southern border, the Southern border specifically, not our friends to the North of us in Canada. This is another example that, uh, that you just articulated Uh, a president who uses fear and divisive tactics to speak to a base, but ultimately at the end of the day, he won't be able to deliver to his base in terms of economic prosperity. Um, border crossings on our southern border uh, are a all-time low, or I should say not an all-time low, but are at a 50-year low. So taxpayer-wise, fiscally, it makes ultimately no sense to send men and women who are highly trained to be military combatants to protect this country against terrorism who are dispatched throughout the world to go to the border and potentially intercept women and children especially if border crossings are at an all-time low or at least a 50-year low. Uh, so these tactics that are divisive, that uh, focus the attention on the less important things, allow this president to get away with what he should be doing is providing for economic growth and prosperity and security uh, for all Americans. I think that the Democratic Party should have a coherent, unifying message for this country. Uh, with regards to economic prosperity. And whether you live in Pennsylvania or or whether you live in uh, Michigan, West Virginia, in in Kentucky, areas that obviously voted for for Donald Trump and in uh, similar areas in in California too, they got to hear a message that resonates very strongly with regards to what we Democrats uh, believe in and a unifying message. I think Democrats are very good at governing. When it comes to messaging, I'm not too sure about that because what the Republicans, the Republicans will outright lie and repeat it continuously and with a sense of passion and with a sense of credibility at the end of the day, never deliver the goods to the American people. I think Democrats are quite good at governing. If you look at all the statistics uh, in uh, the United States, it is the blue states who lead this economy who have the lowest unemployment rate uh, that are donor states to Washington, meaning for every dollar that we send to Washington, we get considerably less coming back. It is the red states in the union who receive exponentially more dollars from Washington than they actually send to Washington. And it's not a critique of many of the southern states that are led by Republicans, whether it's the congressional level the U.S. Senate level, gubernatorial level, or the state houses, mayors and city council members. But the data doesn't lie. And the difference in a state like California is we value diversity, innovation, creativity. We take risks. And at the end of the day, it pays off. That message has to be embedded in the Democratic Party as we move forward. Because it's not about moving more to the left or as folks stated immediately after the presidential election, Democrats have to move more to the right to capture the folks who we lost to Donald Trump. So I'm not moving more to the left or moving to the right. It's about moving forward and moving forward with a coherent message and not just a message that resonates at a visceral level, 
but a party platform that is inclusive with an economic policy that are going to put people to work. Because like I said, poverty is poverty at the end of the day. People want a job. So it's not about moving about moving the party to the left, but there are people within the Democratic Party, and particularly the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, who demand that the party move hardcore to the left. Do you, dis- but, do you disagree with no, that? But let me Is say that a recipe this. for failure? No, not, not necessarily, because I respect and understand what they're saying 100%. Oh, I, know, I understand what they're saying, and I know what they're feeling. But let me uh, take this on. The issue of climate change, for example. The issue of climate change is not a democratic issue, nor is it a progressive issue. It's a scientific issue. It happens to be that Democrats at this moment in time believe in facts and science. It happens to be that Democrats are moving policies, not all Democrats, but a handful of Democrats are moving policies to deal with this issue. And what we've done in California is we've converted an economic, I should say, an, envi- an environmental challenge into an economic opportunity. The, 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 the data point I just gave you, we've created 500,000 jobs in the clean energy space alone. Listen, we came off the worst economic recession since 1929. California was devastated. We were on our knees. We had huge budget deficits, and we made some major cuts, draconian cuts, to social services, to education. California gets knocked down on its ass. It has been, it has before, and it will be in the future. But we're resilient. We get back up, and we clean ourselves off, and we move forward. Climate change is not a democratic left issue. It's a scientific issue that impacts all Americans. It's going to impact us more than others. If you're poor, if you're black, if you're Latino, I think Katrina was a perfect example mm-hmm. of that. If you live in the Ninth Ward, it was a perfect example. You weren't resilient to resist the torrential storms and rains. So if you're poor and you're black and you're brown, uh, your exposure to greenhouse gases and other criteria pollutants because of climate change is exponentially much more. So that's why in California we have moved policies with intentionality and a sense of purpose to protect the most vulnerable in California. We're not perfect, and we're not there yet, but we have started that pathway, and uh, uh, that's that's, – that's what I believe. You you mentioned Tom Steyer before, your fellow California, and he is – all over television, on the airwaves, banging the gong about impeaching President Trump. Is that helpful or hurtful to Democrats, do you think? Well, I think that this is an unprecedented time in our nation's history. I I think these are very historic times. These are very dangerous times. Um, But the reality is this. We have a man, commander-in-chief, that has made our country less safe in this world. We have a commander-in-chief that has potentially been highly influenced by a foreign government. The former Soviet Union, the Russians, the Politburo, the Vladimir Putin in Moscow, who may have well have influenced, not covertly, overtly, the electoral outcome of the most powerful nation on planet Earth. We have all of these business dealings between Trump LLC and the government. And if there is not, I've seen people indicted for significantly less, less crimes. And if there is, and I cannot profess to say to you that I have access to any direct data and information. I'm not in that position. Um, I've spoken with former U.S. attorneys before uh, on this issue, uh, I, I think that Tom Steyer's message is righteous. Uh, I think that it is a message that has resonated all over the country, not just all over the state of California. And I, I, I thank uh, Tom Steyer for being an incredible American citizen to stand up and have the courage to say, this is wrong. And we cannot be normalizing this type of behavior. So, but let me put, have you put on your political hat and say that was a very American re- American response. But now a, well, politi- a, a, a political response, though, helpful or hurtful to Democrats in November to have someone out there demanding and putting Democrats on the spot Listen, about, about impeachment. But this is Washington, D.C. at its best. 
the status quo in the establishment. And I know there's a raging debate right now that it is, is not helpful uh, for some folks uh, in some parts of the country. I think it's helpful to have this debate, to have it open and overt and have the American public discuss this issue. Democrats shouldn't have to run away from this issue. That's one of the problems we have in Washington. They run away from issues. They're afraid to embrace issues. Uh, we're for dreamers, but we're not too much for dreamers. We want to be careful about dreamers. The issue of dreamers, for example, is low-hanging fruit. That's easy. The issue of dreamers, Republicans and Democrats support it overwhelmingly. This is the empirical evidence. We have the quantitative research. But Democrats lose their ability to lead and to demonstrate courage to move forward. That's simple. Comprehensive immigration reform, I will confess, much harder. No question about it. But dreamers, which is a small subset of a bigger challenge, you have to lead with a sense of courage and conviction. But isn't it difficult to lead when you're not in the majority? It'd be one thing if Nancy Pelosi were speaker and and Chuck Schumer were the majority leader in the Senate and they could bring these bills to the floor. Oh, it's much tougher. I mean, you're absolutely right that if those bill, if the Dreamers bill were brought to both to the floor of the House and the Senate right now, they would pass. But you've got Speaker Ryan and Majority Leader um, McConnell who won't do it. So, I mean, yeah, it's low-hanging fruit, but the guy who could make it possible to have that fruit be picked won't do it. Listen, I, I said earlier, there's a trifecta. You have a Republican in the White House, you have Paul Ryan, uh, and you have Mitch McConnell. Uh, you have so bicameral, uh, absolute power, as well as the White House. Uh, but sometimes you have to use the little leverage that you have and take a stand, the, the, the conviction of your own courage. And when you have the ability to uh, stop the continuing resolution, because I tell you one thing, if the Republicans themselves believed in something, they'd stop everything. They wouldn't hesitate for a nanosecond. So if you tout the dreamers all the time, don't use the dreamers all the time and use the power that you have. Now, you're right. There's very limited power given the mathematical equation in Washington, D.C. But when you have the power to stop a continuing resolution, use it. Okay, so they did tr- they did try it, but then but that, I think that lasted seventy two hours. Yeah, it lasted hours. about 72, 72 hours. But they let's didn't say- wait to see the whites of their eyes. <laughs> but waving the waving the white flag of surrender. Before see, it they- was Friday midnight, uh, Monday morning. They were, we got all. So it was unreasonable for Democrats to be worried that the longer uh, a government shutdown happened, the more likely Democrats would bear the brunt of the blame and responsibility for grandma not getting her Social Security check, for national parks not being open, for government just grinding to a halt. That's not a reasonable thing to be worried about? It's a responsibility of the majority party to keep the government open. Who's in the majority today? Republicans, (laughs) Republicans, <laughs> that long silence, but the, the, the answer is, is self-evident. Okay, so let's say you are the junior senator from California. The Democrats have the majority in the House, and the Democratic Speaker and the Democratic-controlled House bring articles of impeachment. And President Trump is successfully impeached in the House. The measure then goes to the Senate where there is a trial. Would you vote to convict President Trump if articles of impeachment came over from the House? The answer is yes. Without hesitation? Without hesitation. Even if it meant President Pence if he were convicted, if Trump were convicted? I think Donald Trump is much more dangerous than Mike Pence. There's no question. Really? I think that Mike Pence believes in what he believes in. So Mike Pence's core values are solid with regards to his beliefs. Doesn't that make him more dangerous? Oh, Someone like Donald Trump uh, doesn't believe in half of what he says. Obviously, we know that. Uh, he's a Republican. Yes, he's a Republican. But he, he switches, you know, constantly. Um, uh, I would venture to say if there was some amazing you know, aberration in electoral politics and he were elected a Democrat, he'd be out there touting immigration and climate change in a heartbeat because he'd figure out what the base wants to hear. Um, I, I think you have a very dangerous person in the White House today. 
someone who doesn't have the uh, the maturity, someone who doesn't have the temerity, uh, someone who lacks um, basic understanding of human interpersonal relationships. Uh, and that is fundamentally key uh, to engaging with uh, elected officials from opposing political parties, uh, dealing with uh, world leaders uh, from uh, across the, uh, the globe. He lacks the most fundamental uh, basic understanding. Um, he's an individual who right now is, uh, is doing everything within his power to tear this country apart. He's a very dangerous man. I think more so than, than Mike Pence. And uh, I know that's debatable, you know, but that, those are my opinions. So you noticed in my example here of Democrats being in the majority in the House and they send over articles of impeachment, I neglected to say who the speaker would be. Um, the, four, the last Democratic speaker of the House was Nancy Pelosi. If the Democrats retake the House and... You know, she's an incumbent. She'll win her, her re-election to her seat if things keep going the way they're going. Should she then be, if Democrats retake the House, should she be speaker again? I, I've, uh, I've got a, a, a good working relationship with Nancy Pelosi. I always have. It's always been very respectful. Um, uh, she's endorsed her good friend, Senator Dianne Feinstein. But uh, she's always been open to me. Uh, she's always taken my calls uh, every time I go to Washington, D.C., she meets with me. Just met with her just a few months ago. Uh, I have much respect for uh, Nancy Pelosi. I could see her as continuing as speaker. Now I know that there's a, a diversity of opinion from within the own Democratic uh, caucus uh, for a whole variety uh, of reasons. And um, I mean, it's always good to have a, a debate. Uh, it's it's healthy, uh, but uh, I respect uh, Nancy uh, Pelosi. I'll take that as a yes. Um, <laughs> The Congressional Hispanic Caucus, if you go to you go to the Senate, um, highly likely you would join join that caucus. What's your 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 relationship like with them? That's or with good, it? Yeah, yeah well, with uh, with the caucus. Itself. The caucus. I, I know probably a handful of members uh, from the CHC, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. I probably know as many more folks from the CBC, Congressional Black Caucus. I know that we have uh, Latinos uh, representing their respective districts throughout the country. What may unify them is they're the Latinos and they're Americans. Uh, and uh, if they have me part of their caucus, I'd be more than welcome. I'm more than happy to be join it, or for that matter, any other caucus. So if the the Congressional Black Caucus wants me, I'll join. If if the Irish <laughs> Caucus wants me, because you know I am Irish too. You know. Wait, what? Wait, what? Well, my name Kevin. You know. <laughs> 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 then you can ask me how did I get that name. Kevin. <laughs> My mom heard it cleaning houses. Uh huh. And so yeah. that's how she that's, liked the you, name. You, I don't. She had no clue. Uh, it was Gaelic. She had no clue. It was Irish. Um, I don't think she was trying to make me into an Irishman. You know and. Uh, uh, she just liked the name Kevin, but no one says Kevin in my family. They say Kevin. Yeah, the Kevin. Kevin. Don't stop Kevin. Yeah. So. Um, when you hear the president talk disparaging, disparagingly about uh, immigrants, Latino immigrants, undocumented immigrants, how close to home does that hit? It's personal. It, uh, it hits uh, home hard. Uh, it, it's not just those from within our own Western Hemisphere, specifically those who are Latinos, but uh, those who are black, you know, from Caribbean nations, Haiti, those are from Ghana, from Nigeria. Interestingly, statistics prove that if you're Nigerian from Lagos, if you're uh, from Ghana, uh, that is the one immigrant group in America that, highest, that has the highest educational attainment. But it, it, it hits hard because this is an attempt to, again, divide the country, to scapegoat a class of individuals to further his own political interests. And I can tell you this, uh, we had Proposition 187 in California. I would tell you this to my Republican friends. Um, you may achieve, and you did achieve in 2016, a Pyrrhic victory. But it's just going to be that. It's going to be a Pyrrhic victory. It's going to be short term. It's going to come at a very high cost. And in the long run, it's not going to work out well for you. 
so you can do what you want to do the way you're doing it, which is the opposite of the way I'm trying to do it and Democrats are trying to do it. Uplift everybody with an inclusive agenda of economic prosperity. There is, is an exclusive agenda to tear down the country and to scapegoat others uh, for their socioeconomic and political ills. In fact, to cover up their own lack of uh, work ethic in Washington. Ultimately, at the end of the day, all fingers point to Washington, D.C. Their inability on both sides of the aisle to get this job done. This issue has been raging on for decades now. So what do you do with the 11 million undocumented immigrants who have been here for years, if not decades, who have contributed to our society? And they're like, we're ready to normalize our legal status, but there is no law yet that allows us to apply. We've been here 20 years, 25 years. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's very fascinating how this plays out in uh, cities and states across the country. And the one who's been sitting pretty, you know, absolved of any responsibility has been the Congress. Ultimately, the buck stops with them. That's why you have individual states doing their own thing. From Texas, that will stop you if you're a local police officer or a Texas Ranger and will ask you if you have citizenship or legal residency. Who among us carry citizenship papers or our birth certificates? You know, I was thinking that maybe I should like, like carry mines around my neck with a gold chain, you know, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to be stopped, you know, a little political bling. Yeah. A little political bling. You know, I should take it at Kinko's and get it, you know, <laughs> I don't know what, you know, plastic when they put the plastic around it, you know, <laughs> right. laminated, you know, laminated. Get it I should laminate it right here with a gold chain, you know, Hey man, chill, man, <laughs> I'm a citizen, you know, or in Alabama where it's unlawful to knowingly rent a house, an apartment to a family who's undocumented. So putting the onus on the owners of apartment buildings or houses to verify your legal status, it puts so much pressure on states because the lack of responsibility, the irresponsibility of the members of Congress who have washed their hands of this. Ultimately, what is happening in the country is the fault of the United States Congress. Last question. And this one is a burning one um, that I've been dying to ask. It's time for me to leave. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> no, but, you're gonna, but this is, well, depending on how you take this question, here it is. I'm a Sagittarius. <laughs> no, that's not it. No? Okay. No. Why is there a, an inflatable unicorn behind you? <laughs> a pink one, too. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. unicorns, they, they, I mean, yeah. Why? I think that it was my staff. It was my campaign staff. Uh, that is um, an incredible uh, campaign staff. Um, and I think it's a symbol of this, uh, of this election uh, running against um, an incumbent who's been an elected official for half a century, for 50 years, uh, who's been a U.S. senator for more than 25 years. Um, who uh, many believe uh, is disconnected to today's California. And also understanding that when you run against uh, an incumbent, the establishment, uh, an institution, uh, someone who is a, a, not a multimillionaire, but who in fact is a billionaire, uh, who's lived in mansions surrounded by walls uh, almost entirely uh, her whole adult life, that it could be easily seen and perceived, understandably so, as a, a huge hill uh, to climb. Um, again, and I, I know I've said this ad nauseum, and I apologize, but as the youngest child of a single immigrant mother with a third grade education, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I'd ever be an elected official. Never. But that's what makes America and California so magical. That someone like with my story, and my story is not unique. Let me be very clear. My story is not unique. It is not an original story. It's the story of millions of Californians, tens of millions of Americans. Whether your story started from Nairobi, Kenya, whether it was Eritrea, Ethiopia, whether it was from Ireland generations ago, you know, it is a quintessential American story. And in this case, we're taking on the 800-pound gorilla, the incumbent. But I think we have a story to tell. 
And I think we have a vision and a policy. And this unicorn, yes, it's symbolic of this campaign. There's no question about that. You know, it is symbolic of this campaign, and I'm proud of it. You know, I know it looks silly, and I get, I, I know it does. You know, but it was, you know, my staff. Heck, I think 75 percent are are all women on this staff. You know, and many women of color on this staff, and that they drive it. They're the ones who delivered that 54 percent of the vote, by the way, at the Democratic convention. You know, I'm like a potted plant, add water and watch it grow. <laughs> you know, they're the ones taking on the establishment. And I think the story, again, is not unique. It's emblematic of all of us, you know, who wants an opportunity to succeed, wants a voice that represents us, and wants someone who's going to champion, who's going to fight. Maybe even not be able to deliver everything that's measurable, but you know, at least you have this sense of confidence. He's fighting for me, and he believes in my values, and that's what I want. California State Senator Kevin DeLeon, former president pro tem of the Senate until March. What is that? Until March 21st. I gave it up because I'm running for the U.S. Senate. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. It was was an incredible honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hey, smart speaker owners. Did you know that you could listen to The Washington Post on your Amazon Echo, Google Home, or Apple HomePod? There's something for everyone, from our podcasts to our short daily flash briefings on history, politics, and D.C. weather. To learn how to listen and to find out what else you can do on your smart speakers, visit WashingtonPost.com slash voice. The Washington 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 Post. Post.